Good morning, friends. Uh, my name's Brad. I am part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and I will be bidding on cinnamon buns. So you guys know I like those, so I see several of them there already. But uh, welcome to those of you who are here in the room with us and also to those who are uh, joining us online. It's a privilege to continue our teaching series as we dive into an important topic today. We're going to talk about original goodness and original sin. What do those things mean and what are the implications for us? So we are, as Pastor Wally mentioned, continuing in our teaching series entitled, This We Believe, Confessing Our Faith. And what we're doing is we're walking through uh, the 18 different articles that comprise our confession of faith as Mennonite Brethren here in Canada. And we started two weeks ago by asking the question, uh, who is God? What is God like in Article 1? And so Pastor Wally explored that for us uh, the nature and character of the triune God, and we said that God is almighty in power. God is perfect in wisdom. God is righteous in judgment. God is overflowing in steadfast love. And then last week, we continued and asked the question, well, how do we know all of these things? And Brady walked us through Article 2 on general and specific revelation, and we asked the question and said, well, God is, uh, God's power and nature have always been evident in creation, and then God re was revealed supremely in Jesus Christ. And so now today we're going to continue in Article 3, and we're going to attempt to articulate what we believe about two big topics, creation and humanity. And so the questions that we're wrestling with are ones like, when we look around us, where did all of this come from? And why are we here? Why are you here? Why am I here? And what is our part as humans in the universe? And these are big questions. And so it's perhaps no surprise that there are then big fights and big disagreements about these types of issues in and by the Christian community. I can remember in my growing up experience coming to understand where some of the battle lines got drawn on some of these things. And they were big battle lines that were drawn. There was biblical creation, and then there were those outside of the church that I was told held to something called uh, naturalistic evolution. And so Darwin was a bad guy. And then the Star Wars movie came out and there was a new battle line that was drawn. And uh, we needed to be clear that pantheism was bad, evil, and wrong. This notion that there was an impersonal life force as opposed to a personal God. And then Yoda became the bad guy in this uh, and then we were taught to fear and argue with a whole set of other people. We were taught that uh, you should fear and argue First Nations because they had a vague sense of Jesus as creator and they weren't using the right language and not praying to the right person. And we were told they probably worshipped birch bark instead of the Holy Spirit. And then we had to fight against the evil of science because all scientists were atheists and whatever you did, you should not send your children to schools where that was taught or advanced in any way or secular university because your faith would be ripped to shreds. And so on and on and on it went with culture war after culture war after culture war. And I was told that all of these 
came to us and we needed to fight all of these battles because Genesis 1, 2, and 3 told us that we should. And you might have your own memories or battle scars from those particular issues. And for many Christians, when they look to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, they're looking for very particular things to be said in those texts. And so we would do well to explore, like, what does the Bible actually teach about creation? What does the Bible actually teach about humanity? And what are the implications for you and I today as we seek to live faithfully in the world? And I'll say right up front that we've done a number of teaching series over the course of the last 16 years at Jericho Ridge on this topic where we've dived in much more in depth and in some way. And so if you'd like to dig deeper into that, just go on the website and, and use whatever search term, uh, use the search bar and type in either Genesis or creation and a number of things will come up for you. And also just as a reminder, uh, as we go through our time together this morning, something might, a question might occur to you and you might want to know more. And so I'd invite you to text your questions to us at uh, 844-650-1629. And whatever questions kind of are percolating for you in this realm. And no question is a dumb question. They're all anonymous, so we don't know who it is that's sending them in. And uh, we are going to do some Q&A. We've, to date, only had one question that has come in. It's been a good one. And so I'd encourage you to keep those coming. We want to dialogue more with you about what are things that are uh, percolating in your mind. So pull out your phones, and as we go through today, maybe something will spark for you, and you'll want to know a little bit more about it. And so we'll take some time for that uh, as we get a few more of those, either online or in the room. Uh, so the other... The preparatory comment that I want to just make before we get into our discussion in Genesis 1, particularly today, is just for us to pay careful attention to the difference between a creed and a confession of faith. So a creed is something like the Westminster Catechism or a Baptistic, uh, often Baptist groups have confessions or statements, sorry, rather, of faith. So a creed is different than a confession of faith. A creed is a set of doctrinal beliefs to which you give mental assent. A confession is different. It represents, and here I'm quoting from a document called The Nature and Function of the Confession, uh, it represents the shared convictions of a community as lived theology, which then comes to define our common identity. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that and what that actually means, but it means that the confession is a living document, which represents our best discernment as a community of faith in this moment in history as to how we understand the Bible to express what the Bible teaches on given topics and then what the implications for us are in our lives and in our churches. And, and so it can be a little bit confusing when we say, we confess that. You might ask, well, who is the we? Is that all people that attend all Mennonite Brethren churches in Canada? Is that we at Jericho Ridge? And so sometimes we need to press into that a little bit more and ask, who is the we in that particular statement? But one of the things that it means is that as new challenges emerge, we 
have fresh conversations about what it means to live faithfully as disciples of Jesus in our day and in our time. And, and that posture is something that sometimes a creed does not give you the possibility to engage with in that same way. And some of you come from creedal traditions. And so I just want to acknowledge that when we, when we move into discussions about the confession of faith, it's not a creed. And so sometimes the level of ambiguity might be a learning curve for you. And that's because we see this as a discipleship document, not merely a doctrinal one. And so we're going to use Article 3 as an example of that uh, today. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And Pastor Wally read this already for us this morning, which says in the New Living Translation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, while there are many, many, many things that could be said about this, Here's how we wrestle with the implications of this statement in Article 3 of our Confession of Faith. So here's a direct quote from Article 3. We believe that, and this is the we collectively as uh, discerned by the Mennonite Brethren in Canada. We believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and they were very, very good. All of creation expresses God's sovereign will and design, but remains distinct from the creator. The universe belongs to God, who takes care and delight in sustaining it. Creation declares God's wisdom and power, calling all to worship him. And that's what Brady led us through in Article 2 last week. So that is what we say about creation. So take a moment and pause and let your mind wander a bit and think about what we chose not to say about creation. We didn't say that the universe was created by God in six 24-hour days 10,000 years ago. We didn't say that God put the world into motion, left it to develop along certain parameters, like someone who would hold to theistic evolution might say. We didn't talk about genetics. We didn't talk about where the Garden of Eden was located, latitudinally or longitudinally, how Cain got Cain's wife, what happened to the dinosaurs, or a whole host of other good questions that you and I might, as products of the post-enlightenment scientific revolution, want to know the answers for. But taking a confessional position also means that we want to be careful and attentive to say what the Bible says about things and not say a lot more or go beyond what the Bible would say. And so a confessional reading of scripture as Mennonite brethren means that the Bible is vague about a whole ton of things that we would like to know more about. It doesn't mean that those aren't good questions or that we don't have some other guidance or possibilities in terms of answers. It simply means that when we look at a text like Genesis 1, the author and the original audience had a different purpose in mind when they wrote those things down in the book of Genesis, and it may not always satisfy our level of curiosity. And so we're going to talk today about four implications that come out of this particular 
article in our confession of faith. And the first one is this, that when it comes to seeking answers in Genesis, focus on the who and the why, not on the how. The who and the why. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are designed to answer those questions for us, who and why, but not always how. Who created the universe? Well, God created the universe. And why did God create the universe? And all of the details as to how that occurred are not necessarily spelled out for us with the level of clarity that we sometimes like. But the Bible is clear on the who and the why. So to the question that is a very reasonable one to look around us and say, where did all of this come from? We would say as Christian people that the universe was created by a personal, moral, compassionate being who wishes to be in a loving and reciprocal relationship with humanity. That's the why, and also a little bit of God's character. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created. And so this leads us to an important observation about the wide variety of tenable opinions that could then hold and still agree with that statement or with our Mennonite Brethren confession of faith. You might be in a position where you hold personally to a literal view of six-day creationism. And you might be sitting beside, behind, or around someone who feels quite differently about things. That maybe God was behind what science describes as the Big Bang, Big Bang Theory. And neither viewpoint is inherently antithetical to Genesis 1, 2, or 3, and both viewpoints exist in our church family and in Mennonite Brethren community as a whole, and both people can affirm and hold a high view of Scripture and confess God as creator and sustainer of all that exists. So the question then becomes, when we get to arguments or battle lines, can these two people who hold differing opinions and both say that they subscribe to the confession of faith, can they exercise mutual respect for each other is a big question. And it makes it a little bit more challenging, frankly, to live in a confessional as opposed to a creedal tradition. And so this brings us to another important implication as to how we approach the confession, which is really about how we approach Scripture and how we at Jericho Ridge both, both Scripture and each other. So implication one was focus on the who and the why, not on the how. And the second thing to say is just to avoid needless antagonism. There are all kinds of things that are worth and worthy contending for, but sometimes we blur the lines and get antagonistic and amped up about things that are not worthy to contend for. So, for example, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it has theological intent, and it is not particularly helpful to use it beyond its intent and to try and make Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to say things that it wasn't designed or intended to say. So making Genesis 1 into a science textbook is not particularly helpful. 
At the same time, it is wise and prudent to realize that scientific naturalism is a worldview that can be antagonistic to faith. But inherently, the two disciplines, science and theology, can be complementary ways of exploring truth claims. They are not necessarily needed to be pitted against each other. They can be seen as using different languages to describe the same thing that they're seeing. So if we let them, healthy biblical inquiry and healthy scientific inquiry can inform one another as opposed to the narrative that has existed since Galileo that science and faith are just inherently antagonistic to one another. That's just needless antagonism and is not true. So avoiding needless antagonism is helpful. Let's keep moving in our second exploration under Article 3. So that's on creation. And, and the second part is about humanity. So we say this about humankind. Humans, the crowning act of creation, were designed to live in fellowship with God and in mutually helpful relationships with each other. God created them, male and female, in the image of God. The creator gave them the mandate to rule over and care for creation as a sacred trust and the freedom to obey or disobey him. Through the willful disobedience of Adam and Eve, sin entered the world, and as a result, human nature is distorted, people are alienated from God and creation, and creation is under the bondage of decay. Humans and all creation long to be set free. So we're going to talk more later on in our series about the how and the when of what it means to be set free and the solution aspect of this as we move into subsequent articles. But we're going to skip over that for now. We just want to explore briefly what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 teaches us about humankind, because this is important for how we see ourselves and how we then go about conducting ourselves in the world in which we find ourselves, and also how we relate to the created world. And so in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see that in all of creation, humanity actually occupies a a significant and special place. Only man, in Hebrew, ha-adam, humanity, and woman are named as being made in the image of God. They're unique, and this comes up in the Psalms, in, chapter, in Psalm chapter 8, for example, where the psalmist declares the place that humanity occupies within the created order, talking about it's just a little lower than an angelic beings, and, and representative of God in the world, and designed to represent God and carry God, spare God's image well in the world. And, and this is an important point because a high view of humans in God's created order is going to show up time and time again in terms of ethics and what we believe and how we live out and practice and have conversations about things like abortion or genetic research or euthanasia. And this comes to us from the text of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles or want to look on your device, open to Genesis chapter 1 and look with me at Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 28. When God is creating, in verse 26, God said, let us make 
human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, the livestock, and the wild animals on the earth, small animals that scurry along the ground. So, verse 27, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, God created them, male and female. He created them, and then God blessed them. So, we need to understand that in all of creation, there is a breathtaking special relationship between God and humans. And this brings up our third implication, and that is that men and women are equals, and they're equals because they're both equal image bearers of God. And There are some Christian traditions who argue that created order, meaning that because man was created first, that then men bear God's image and then women subsequently do not bear God's image in the same way. But the text doesn't bear that weight. God made both women and men to be image bearers and God blessed both women and men to carry out the work of image bearing or reflecting God in that work in the world. And so one of the implications then for us here at Jericho Ridge is that we are what is known as an egalitarian congregation. And that means that um, though this is an area of polity for churches, which we'll come to later on, meaning that not all Mennonite Brethren churches would hold to that conviction or understanding of the confession of faith. That is, the we here at Jericho Ridge have done subsequent theological discussion and work to come to our particular conclusion and our reading of the whole of Scripture on this text. And what that means is that when it comes to leadership and service and giftedness for image-bearing work of uh, humanity in the world, we believe that the Holy Spirit is poured out in full measure on men and women, the sons and daughters of God, and that we serve and stand as equals before God and as image-bearers of God and responsible to God. And when we look at a verse like then Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, which occurs after what theologians call the fall or the entrance of sin into the world, where the Lord says to uh, the woman in Genesis 3.16, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Some traditions would see that as a statement of reality or a statement of, again, that reinforcement of order or dominion, but we see this and read this as a post-fall text, a negative implication of the effects of the fall on relationships, not as a prescription for God's ideal order. And so that is uh, one of the implications for us here at Jericho in terms of what it means to serve and to lead as men and women together. And so that might be, for you, an area of action this week. Much of the leadership in the evangelical church uh, through the last centuries has been done by men. And so what that can mean is that 
women can be underrepresented in places of leadership, sometimes not for theological grounds, just because they haven't seen themselves lived out in those spaces. And so that means that sometimes women don't actually see or don't have their gifts nurtured or called out by people around them. And so one thing that I would encourage you to do is to think about someone that you know who is a woman and who has gifts of leadership and service and is image-bearing God well in the world. It doesn't have to be in a formal position of leadership. And take time this week to actually name that and encourage that. Call it out in them and say, I see this aspect of God's work in your life and in the world. Offer words of blessing and support to them. Honor them for the work that they do to image bear in God's good world and the advancement then of God's mission and character in the world. So that is the part that we believe about mutuality. It's how we live out here at Jericho, that expressed reality of uh, image bearers and the mutuality of image bearers. The fourth implication that we want to cover today is the notion then of our relationship as image bearers with what we talked about last week, and that is the created order. Look with me again at Genesis chapter 1. We'll read from verse 28 uh, and following. Then God blessed man and woman and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth, all the fruit trees for your food. I've given every green plant for food for all of the wild animals, birds in the sky, small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. One of the interesting things that comes up in this text is words like govern or rule over. Other translations say have dominion over. And one of the sort of potential shadow sides or the challenges of having a high view of humans in creation is that as humans, it's quite possible for us to turn around and think, well, we have a superior position here. Therefore, we can do what we like. And we can exercise dominion, and that can become, in some instances, a license to dominate, to deface, to destroy. We can be tempted to treat the earth as a commodity, which can be bought and sold, exploited and abused, consumed and discarded. And Christians have been guilty of this as well because of their perspective on how things will end in some ways, which we'll talk about more in coming weeks. But from a Genesis perspective, of all people, we as Christians should really be at the forefront of caring for and exercising appropriate and healthy stewardship of God's good world. And so the way that we would say this is that exercising dominion is not an excuse for environmental irresponsibility because if we love and respect our creator, we will care for and love and respect God's creation. We don't worship it. 
but we care for and take our stewardship mandate seriously. And here again, we come up against this notion that a confession of faith is not just a dry series of ideas. It is a call for us to reflect and to act. And so maybe for you, today, one of your takeaways or your reflection and action items could be, is there any way in my life that I could increase my stewardship for God's good world? What does that look like for you? Maybe you could walk or bike to work one day this week because gas is going to cost you a buck 80 anyhow. Maybe there's a way that you could think about reducing your overall consumption in caring for creation and contributing to the health of God's earth. And so if we love and respect our creator, we can care for God's creation. And oftentimes this brings us into winsome, partnership-oriented conversations with other people who may not share our convictions about God, but for whom we can have robust conversations about the why questions for us that we step into those places of stewardship and care. One final thought as we round out our time together today. And that is that our high view of humanity and creation is certainly wonderful, but it is not the whole story. We are going to talk in the coming weeks about more about what happens in Genesis chapter 3, where humanity makes significant choices to reject God and where sin enters the world. And so uh, some of you, if you look at the top of Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible, it might have a heading like the fall or something of that nature. And some of the major theological systems within the Christian tradition emphasize or end up so emphasizing Genesis chapter 3 and the fall and human depravity that that can be read through that lens as being the main point of the story. And I think here we have to exercise a little bit more balance and care because what ends up happening is how you end up defining the problem determines your solution. And so a question that theologians and Christian people wrestle with is the question of how original is original sin. And those who stand in the Anabaptist tradition, we believe that the story of God's engagement with humanity starts in Genesis chapter 1. And so the first note that is played in that symphony is a note of God's goodness. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, over and over, it says, God declared what God made as good. God looked over all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And so even in the confessional article, we put in a second very and say, we believe that what God created was very, very good. In other words, before there was original sin, there was original goodness. 
And this is not original goodness in the way that the Buddhist tradition would use that phrase or some in some progressive wings of the Christian tradition believe in that where you could somehow recapture that sense of original goodness without a need for the saving work of Jesus. That's not what we're talking about at all, friends. This is simply to remind us that how theological systems come to be is that many of them end up spending all the time talking about the problem. And it ends up obscuring some of the wonder and the goodness and the beauty of God in this. And so if you build a theological system that is repeatedly focused on bringing people back time and time and time again to how wretched they are, how fallen they are, how this goes straight to the core of their identity, they end up believing that that might always be the only thing that is true of them. And we call this worm theology in, in a, an unrefined or unhelpful form, it can leave humans feeling that what is most true about them is that God hates them and that they had better figure out a way to fix that. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Article 4 and beyond. But I just want to pause here in this article and say that that might actually be why some of you have challenges and difficulty hearing and receiving messages about the love of God. Because your concept of God has been shaped by Genesis 3 more so than by Genesis 1. Shaped that it's obliterated it. And we're going to talk more about the impact of sin on our lives in the coming weeks. But for now, I want to just remind you that even Paul, who gets appealed to a lot on this regard, in Romans chapter 15, verses 14, says this, I am fully convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. Not in a salvific sense, not in some way that you can work your way into God's good books because of how full of goodness that you are, but in the sense that you were made by God who is full of goodness and you have been made to reflect God's goodness into the world. And friends, I want to say that with all of the things going on in our world right now, one of the last things that probably most of us need to be reminded about is how horrible we are and how bad things are. So I want to remind us again today that what God pronounced as good, yes, sin and evil can and do deface and mar and obscure, but never to the point that it erases God's goodness. Never to the point that it obliterates God's goodness. Because when God made you, God said the same thing that God said at the dawn of creation. I made you and you are good. I made you and you are loved. And as powerful as the effects of the fall have been, maybe you've chosen to walk away from God. You are still loved. You are still the beloved. 
And sometimes we just need to be reminded of this. And one of the ways that we do this is by praying for and with each other. And so as is a part of our regular practice here at Jericho Ridge, we're going to move into a time of worship and response. And we're going to have people in the room who are available to pray for you. And today, that's Miriam and Kevin uh, and Gary. And these are people who have walked a journey of listening and learning to receive from God. And I want to say to you, whatever you're facing today, they would love to pray with and for you. And maybe it's just a simple reminder of saying, you know what, I need that simple reminder of God's love for me. They would be happy to pray that over you. Maybe you came with a particular area of need in your life. We're here for you. And as the worship team comes, I want to remind you that if you're joining us online, you can reach out via email and email prayer at jerichoridge.com. And we would love to engage with you in that way. As we move into a time of responding to God in worship, let me lead us in a time of prayer and reflection. Would you bow your head with me? Let's pray. Almighty God, the one who made beauty erupt out of the blackness, perfection sparkle where chaos once reigned, a universe clean and pure. We declare again today that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all that fill it. O Lord, we delight in your creation and all creation delights in your care and your sustaining presence. But who, who are we? that you should take notice of us. We are mortals. Who are we that you would even look at us? But God, you were not content with beauty alone. You desired love. And so you created us in your image to love you and to live with you in love. Male and female, you created us and in your image. You gave us the world to name it, to tame it, to enjoy it, to offer it back to you in ministries of care and creativity. And holy God, we acknowledge that we have failed you at the beginning and we have sinned ever since. And as sin entered into the world, death through sin, but life and salvation have entered through Jesus Christ. And so, God, we declare and affirm again that your light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot put it out. We live in the pain of Eden's curse, but we also live with our eyes fixed on the promise of Eden regained. Stir in us, God that renewed sense of ability to relate to you, to receive your love, to receive your goodness, and to reflect that to a world that needs it. We ask these things in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Friends,